A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the wonderful privilege of talking about the impact of osteoarthritis on sleep and how you can improve your sleep. Now, as you probably have experienced throughout your life with osteoarthritis, you'll get pain. Sometimes that'll disturb your sleep, but then sometimes you might also find that you have a poor sleep and the following day, your pain is not so good either. Now, sleep disturbances are incredibly common in people who have osteoarthritis. And research has postulated that a poor nighttime sleep is associated with increased pain the following day, and that sleep disturbances are associated with an increased risk for developing or worsening pain in the long term. So the interactions between pain and sleep are complex. And on this episode of Joint Action, we try to unpack that complexity. And we're joined by Peter Sestouli to discuss that relationship between sleep and pain and how we can improve that sleep. Professor Peter Sestouli holds the ResMed Chair in Sleep Medicine at the University of Sydney, where he leads the sleep research theme within the multidisciplinary Charles Perkins Center. He heads the discipline of sleep medicine within the Faculty of Medicine and Health. He's also the director of the Center for Sleep Health and Research in the Department of Respiratory and Sleep Medicine at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney. He's an active clinical researcher with 28 years experience in the fields of respiratory and sleep medicine. His thematic research has focused on the pathophysiology of sleep disorder breathing and novel approaches to therapy. 
Hello, Peter, and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, David. It's a real treat uh, to be part of it, and I hope uh, the listeners uh, get something out of it today. Oh, I'm sure they will. It's a great pleasure to have you along. Now, before we get into the main content of today, which is obviously around sleep, I'd like to get the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. It's also selfishly for me as well. But can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Sure. Well, I guess um, being a sleep doctor conjures up all sorts of interesting ideas about what I do. But uh, my background is actually as a respiratory physician or a lung doctor. And uh, in the Australian context, uh, sleep medicine really grew out of respiratory medicine because of the link to breathing disorders during sleep. I'm a, an academic and a clinician. These days, I spend uh, 60 to 70% of my time doing research, and I do that at the University of Sydney, mostly. And I continue to uh, hold a clinical appointment at Royal North Shore Hospital, where I run the sleep investigation uh, laboratory and the sleep medicine service. So over a week, it's about three days of research and a couple of days of clinical activity. Brilliant. Now, when you're when you're not researching and treating sleep disorders, what do you like to do outside of work? Well, I have to admit, um, I'm a bit of a home bod, and I love fixing things around the house. So I'm a real handyman, a demon with a cordless drill, and yeah, I don't mind chopping down the odd tree and things. So it's uh, all sorts of DIY types of jobs. Brilliant. Brilliant. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, Peter, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Yeah, um, the immediate thing is the following five words. I am a nice guy. That's probably a little bit of a cop out. <laughs> I think I'd like to see myself as being fair, honest, respectful, trustworthy and, and hardworking. All wonderful qualities, both for um, someone who's a physician, but obviously a good, good human in the world as well. I try to be. Now, obviously, the main content of today is really about sleep and its interaction and impact in people that have osteoarthritis. And what I'd, I guess, like to get to in the first instance is talk a little bit about the biology of sleep and how common sleep disturbance is amongst adults and then look at its interaction with, with pain and, if we can, osteoarthritis, but I guess pain in general. But in the first instance... Obviously, we're largely talking about a population of older adults. And as we mature, we probably have, I don't know, less requirement for sleep. And some of our diurnal patterns change. Just tell us a little bit about what normal sleep in an older adult, so someone who's 50, 60 years of age, might look like. What would be the typical requirements? Obviously, there's some variability, but what would you typically expect? Yeah, no, that's a great question, David. Uh, I might actually take a step back and sort of suggest to the, the listeners that, you know, sleep's a pretty mysterious biological process. And the fact that it survived the evolutionary process tells us that it serves a very fundamental purpose. All species on Earth sleep, and so it must have an important function for survival. We know that as we age, our sleep patterns change, and we see it sort of most evidently in newborns who spend most of their time sleeping, and they're getting a lot of REM sleep, which helps the brain develop. And usually, you know, adult sleep patterns sort of start to evolve in the late teens, where we 
head towards that sweet spot of around seven to eight hours per night. And then as we age, there's a kind of a few myths that have developed. And this concept that we need less sleep as we age is probably not quite right in that our total need for sleep remains the same, but we fulfill that need sort of in a different pattern. And so our nighttime sleep starts to become disrupted for a range of reasons. Part of it's the aging process, but sleep disorders can also contribute to that. And then, you know, there's these kind of cat naps that happen during the day sort of to start to catch up for the lost sleep at night. And so we start to see that typical napping that, that can occur um, as part of the aging process. And, you know, what, what are the common sleep disturbances that you might see as a clinician and how, how common are they, Peter? Sleep disorders, but, but also just poor sleep behaviours are pervasive in our society. And I think most of us, um, you know, will have experienced times in our life where our sleep has been subpar, either self-inflicted or for other reasons. And we also have a good experience of the impacts of poor sleep on our well-being and our function the next day. I think in terms of disordered sleep, there's probably four big ones. Obstructive sleep apnea, which is a condition where people's breathing is interrupted during sleep and that causes sleep disturbance and oxygen drops, which is not good for the brain and the heart in particular. And that affects about 25% of men and half as many women. So very common. The problem of insomnia is a condition where people can have difficulty getting off to sleep, staying asleep or waking up too early. That sort of happens in about 30% of the population at some stage in their life and about 10% of people have chronic insomnia, which sort of takes on a life of its own. There's a curious disorder called restless leg syndrome where people get twitchy legs at night. That can affect about 10% of the population and has a familial predisposition. And then another very common sleep disorder that's emerged out of the evolution of the 24-7 society since the Industrial Revolution is shift work disorder, where people working rotating shifts start to have disruptions to their sleep because their circadian rhythms uh, get shot. And so that can affect the majority of people who are involved in shift work. Wonderful overview. Now, when it comes to chronic pain and thinking about those particular sleep disorders that you've just mentioned, are those sleep disorders more or less common amongst people that have chronic pain disorders like osteoarthritis? Yeah, look, I think problems with pain are incredibly common and pain due to rheumatic problems, joint problems are also very common. So when we're dealing with multiple common problems, they can coexist, you know, just by coincidence. But what we're starting to see is that there are these kind of relationships where there is a clustering of sleep disturbance, chronic pain, and arthritis of one form or, or another. And it starts to make you think about common risk factors and perhaps new ways of dealing with the problems in a more holistic way rather than dealing with the individual problems. I think if we start to think about sleep and pain, there's the intuitive understanding that, that if you're in pain, it, it's going to interfere with sleep. And so that's sort of the old way of thinking that 
uh, pain disrupts sleep. But what the new thinking is, is that, that bad sleep also alters the pain experience. And so you can get this vicious cycle that develops. And in particular, it seems that sleep disruption heightens the sensitivity to pain. In other words, the way the brain sees pain and, and the way the patient experiences the pain. And so there have been very elegant experiments initially in animals, but also in, in healthy humans where you disrupt their sleep and then you test their pain sensitivity and it, it worsens after a period of sleep disruption. And so now we're taking that kind of research into the clinical sphere and, and finding that in clinical populations with arthritis and pain, for example, that preceding poor sleep can be a trigger for an exacerbation of the pain. That's a brilliant, a wonderful explanation. And I think probably very relevant to many of the people out there who have osteoarthritis for them to understand that bi-directional relationship, if you want to call it that, where both pain can disrupt sleep, but also that uh, sleep itself can exacerbate an underlying experience of pain through that sensitization. Are there other mechanisms that predispose to that sleep exacerbating pain, whether it be around, I mean, obviously you've mentioned central sensitization, but what does sleep do to systemic inflammation, particularly cognizant of the fact that a lot of the people that we're talking with osteoarthritis may be above a healthy weight and have features of metabolic syndrome and obstructive sleep apnea and other concomitant illnesses that go with that. But are there other uh, systemic changes that go on within a person that may exacerbate pain as a consequence of poor sleep? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, David. Um, I think uh, you're, you're right on there. I think, you know, I alluded earlier on to sleep must be sort of a fundamental biological process. And one of the things we've struggled with is understanding the function of sleep. But I think that that question of what is the function of sleep has been the wrong question because it's not a single function, it's multiple functions. And, and one of the key functions is restoration of body systems, of tissue repair and the like. And so if you don't get consolidated sleep, of which there are different depths, each of which probably have different functions, then the body's inherent tissue repair systems and systems for dampening down inflammation don't work. And so you get this gradual rise in damage and inflammation, which in the context of arthritis uh, is very important, but it's also very important as an underlying mechanism that promotes heart disease and stroke and diabetes and the like. So this is sort of like an underlying substrate that's common to many diseases and sleep seems to have an important role in modulating that inflammatory process. And then you touched on the fact that there are often comorbidities, and so people with arthritis may be overweight. Being overweight obviously puts pressure on joints, and being overweight can also interfere with sleep. In particular, it's a risk factor for sleep apnea, this condition where people snore and stop breathing at night. So if that starts to happen, not only do you get sleep disruption, which interferes with these processes that we're talking about but on top of that you get low oxygen levels which further damages tissues and drives inflammation even more 
So you start to get this sort of vicious cycle of effects. Of course, the consequence of poor sleep is that you're tired the next day. If you're tired, you might be less active. If your pain experience is heightened, you're going to be less active. That contributes to further weight gain, which makes sleep worse. So you can see how, you know, you can quickly get on that slippery slope. Yeah, it does sound like very much of a vicious cycle uh, in what you're just describing there, Peter. Now, you, you mentioned that obviously sleep has various depths that you go through and I guess a, a normal sleep cycle. Which part of sleep is that that's most important for that restorative aspect that you're referring to? One of the key stages is called slow-wave sleep, so-called because of the uh, brainwave patterns that it produces, very large kind of waves. And it's the stage that's considered restorative sleep and probably involved in these processes like tissue repair and dampening down inflammation and the like. Whereas rapid eye movement sleep, so-called because we happen to flick our eyes during that stage of sleep, is a state where the body's sort of quasi-paralyzed but the brain is firing. That stage is thought to have a lot to do with emotional regulation as well as memory consolidation. And there's some early research suggesting that disruption of REM sleep may be particularly relevant to this central desensitization that you mentioned, this heightening of the experience of pain. And so it, it seems possible that there are these selective differences in the type of um, sleep that's being disrupted. There was an interesting experiment where people who had been deprived of the slow wave sleep, which I mentioned as a restorative phase of sleep, if they were allowed to have a catch up of that, it seemed to have an analgesic effect. So it seemed to reduce pain. So highlighting that that, that particular stage may have relevance to pain experience as well. Uh, brilliant. And uh, again, a tremendous explanation. And for people who are out there who have pain, who may have or may have a sensation that they have one of these sleep disorders, there's obviously different ways that they may understand about measuring that or understanding that or appreciating that. And there I'm thinking about things like, you know, the use of smartwatches, devices that people wear that potentially might measure sleep duration, uh, latency and, and the quality of their sleep. Obviously a more complex technical formal sleep study that they may have to go into a hospital for. Uh, there's these self-reported instruments how does someone who's out there who, have, who has osteoarthritis, who's, who's worried that sleep is compounding their symptoms, how do they go about working out if they truly do have a sleep disorder? Are these smartwatches all that they're cut out to be and can self-reported instruments capture some of this? Yeah, no, that, that's a terrific question. And there's no doubt that the digital revolution that's upon us is really transforming the way healthcare is being provided. So I think the... The first comment I would make is that the simplest way for an individual to start to appreciate where the sleep is problematic is, is the way they feel when they wake up and the way they function during the day. If you wake up groggy and feel tired throughout the day, needing a rest and wanting to sleep, 
then it's a real clue that something's not right overnight. So that should start sort of an internal dialogue, uh, if not an external dialogue with, uh, with the GP. In terms of these consumer wearables, there's obviously some very good things about them and some less good things about them. First of all, I, I like the idea that it helps people get objective information about their lifestyle, whether it's physical activity levels or sleep levels. It is important that people realise that there are limitations to the information that these devices produce and that because they're not medical devices, they're not subject to the same level of standards for proving their clinical validity. And so a lot of these devices make claims that far exceed the reality. If I sort of summarise what we know about these devices, they're pretty good at determining sleep duration, so reasonably good in that regard. But when they start to get into claims of measuring sleep quality, different sleep depths and the like, then that's a bit of a stretch. So I think there's that positive side of patients becoming aware of their sleep. On the negative side, people can get overly preoccupied about the data produced by these devices and that can have a detrimental effect if you're start to become over worried about your sleep one thing about sleep is that it's a it's a passive process in the sense that it happens to you you don't have to do anything to let it happen and the minute you start trying to perfect it it all falls apart so anything that causes excessive worry about sleep can be counterproductive and that's where these devices sometimes uh, produce problems it's a marvelous explanation and obviously you spoke about the wearables the more complex way that person might be able to understand their sleep is to do a, a formal sleep study what's involved in a formal sleep study yeah look the traditional um, sleep test involves people coming into a laboratory and they get set up with um all sorts of electrodes that measure brainwave patterns, breathing um, through the nose, some respiratory effort bands around the chest and abdomen, uh, leg movement. We occasionally video the whole thing if we think there may be a neurological issue. It's a really comprehensive test and it's done under the supervision of a technologist who sets you up and then monitors all the signals across the night. So very labour-intensive fairly costly and in a laboratory setting. Of course, the key concern there is that people may not sleep the way they do at home. And unfortunately, we now have technology that can do very sophisticated sleep testing in the home environment without the requirement for any supervision. And so patients can come to the sleep centre and get set up and take it home and sleep with it and return it to us. And we get really comprehensive uh, information. There's the issue of, you know, doing a single night and how representative that is of someone's sleep patterns. And so occasionally we need to kind of repeat it. Coming back to the whole digital revolution, I, I see a convergence between the consumer wearables and the medical device technologies. And I, I think we're not too far away from having medical grade devices that are going to be able to use the long term at home to really get more comprehensive information that can track trajectories and, and whatnot. That's tremendous. And obviously that sounds like it's in a state of flux, but what proportion of people that have a formal sleep study would be doing that at home now as, as opposed to coming into a, the formal hospital laboratory environment? Yeah, it's a great question. So sleep studies have been done in Australia for close to 40 years. 
And in 2009, the government introduced Medicare reimbursement for home sleep testing. And if you look at the graph of home sleep testing, it's now surpassed that of in-laboratory testing. So I'm going to say that probably 60% of sleep studies are home sleep tests now and about 40% in the lab. Yeah. All right. Let's work through that dialogue that we've just been through with you here. And, you know, a person's woken up, they don't feel restored, they feel a bit groggy. You've obviously given us the explanation that there are a number of different sleep disorders that can occur in people with osteoarthritis. There's some different studies that they can do, but are there some simple things that they might be able to do in the first instance to optimize their sleep hygiene, if that's an appropriate word to use in the first instance before doing anything formal with a sleep physician such as yourself? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, so first of all, the term sleep hygiene is the correct term. Of course, it's got nothing to do with cleanliness per se, but it's about good habits, establishing good habits around the sleep process. And I think that the first thing that an individual should ask is, are they getting enough sleep? You know, the average duration for an adult, I've touched on this a little bit before, is about seven to eight hours. So let's say seven and a half hours. And that should be viewed as a bit of a sweet spot. Turns out that, yeah, if you get less than that or more than that, then that could be counterproductive. So the first question is, are you getting enough sleep? In this day and age, you know, we have lots of distractions in the way and people procrastinate sort of around bedtime. And so people going to bed later and later and having to get up early, perhaps for work or other reasons. So there's a high rate of sleep deprivation in our population. And that would be the commonest cause of people feeling tired. And you can address that, obviously, by sleeping more. Requires a bit of discipline. The key to that is really having a bit of a wind down routine in the evening not eating too late, having a break from work, um, activities, some relaxation. I think a lot of people these days are relying on electronic media for entertainment value or work in the evening. And one of the concerns about these electronic media, it's a big issue in teenagers and young adults, but equally in old people who are good adopters of technology. The issue is uh, twofold. One, it's a distraction from getting to bed. But two, these devices are held close to the eyes and they emit blue light. That blue light is registered by the eyes. Our eyes, apart from being a visual organ, also have photoreceptors that detect light. And that light speaks to a particular part of the brain called the pineal gland. And when you expose it to light, it reduces the release of a sleep hormone called melatonin. And so this becomes a big problem if you're trying to go to sleep and your melatonin level has been reduced by the blue light. So this is a big problem. So avoiding electronic media use in the lead up to bed is important. I think in this day and age, you know, we've all got worries um, and a lot of people use the quiet of night to try and solve problems. So going to bed with um, unresolved issues can be problematic. So Sometimes having a planned worry session in the evening, thinking about tomorrow's schedule, things that upset you during the day can help relieve some of that anxiety so that you're going to sleep in a more relaxed state. And then, of course, the physical environment in which you sleep is important. Having sort of a bedroom that's used for sleep as opposed to multiple other activities. I know some of the listeners will be thinking about sex. Yes, um, it's okay. 
to have sex as well. Um, so sleep and sex are okay in the bed. And then um, some of the other considerations for physical environment is the light. I'm trying to avoid light, so having good curtains, etc. But the other thing is uh, bed clothing, blankets and whatnot, to ensure that you don't overheat. These days, a lot of people use doonas. And the problem with doonas is that they trap heat. That's why they're so nice. And one of the curious things about temperature regulation and sleep is that when we hit rapid eye movement sleep, we lose our ability to regulate temperature through sweating. So we become like reptiles. It's a term called poikilothermia. And it means that we just adopt the temperature of our ambient environment. And so doonas will cause you to wake up during REM sleep by overheating. So that was a bit long-winded, but there's a lot of pearls in there for people to think about. No, it's superbly helpful because I think a lot of a lot of those tricks around, you know, light in the bedroom, doonas, blue light emitting devices that people might use are really, as you say, pervasive in today's modern world. And I think particularly in an osteoarthritis population, you know, the concomitant illnesses around depression and anxiety and stress and, and other mental health disturbances, I think obviously also play a key role here. What, if any, advice would you give regarding alcohol and caffeine in this instance as well around sleep hygiene? Yes, yes, that, that uh, was an omission. Um, so, yeah, they're really important things. In fact, they're probably the, the elephants in the room. So alcohol is an interesting one because many people use alcohol as part of the relaxation process and it gets you to sleep faster. So people often think of alcohol as being great for relaxing. The problem um, with alcohol is that it can exacerbate breathing problems during sleep. So it will make snoring and sleep apnea worse. And also just uh, regardless of sleep disorders, as the alcohol level wears off during the course of the night, that seems to have a sleep disturbing effect as well. So in, in general, alcohol will make sleep worse. So if, you, if you're not a great sleeper, then I think minimizing alcohol is a good thing. Caffeine is another one. It's a stimulant. And that's why a lot of people take it in the morning to help them get going. Of course, yeah, if you take it at night, when you get that stimulation in the lead up to bed, it's, it's not really conducive to good sleep. Now, of course, there'll be people out there who swear that coffee doesn't affect them, and they may be right. It turns out that there are sort of genetic variations in the impact of caffeine on, on this alerting system. So, so it doesn't affect everybody, but I think if you're a bad sleeper, then I think you should think about minimising or avoiding stimulant medications and substances like caffeine. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a marvellous explanation. I think it should be really, very useful for a lot of the people who are out there listening. And obviously, you know, the, the relevance of this really comes back to what we were saying before about the importance of sleep and sleep quality to a person's experience of pain. And, you know, there's a lot of interactions here, whether a person's using alcohol to treat their pain, whether it be mental health disturbances that could also exacerbate their pain. But are there other elements about chronic pain that, you'd like to give particular tips to that might help people with their sleep and sleep quality, Peter? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I just want to pick up on, you, you know, you mentioned mental health and, and depression and anxiety. And in the research that's looking at this bi-directional relationship between 
pain and sleep and, and arthritis. It does seem that mood disturbance is a key mediator. So what that means is that, that sleep will affect your mood, pain will affect your mood, and mood sort of then has relationships to sleep and pain. So there's no doubt that there's this um, complex interaction that's not just sleep and pain, but mood disturbance is a key feature of it. So coming back to the question of, yeah, what can people with chronic arthritis and pain do? I, I think hopefully this podcast today has helped open up some thinking about, it. you know, it's not just about painkillers, it's not about physical therapies, but thinking about the impact of lifestyle more broadly. And, and hopefully this podcast has opened up some thinking around sleep as one of those factors. It's not the answer uh, to everything, but uh, it's part of this complex picture. And I think that, you know, the, the outcomes, um, the improvements to pain and quality of life you know, are probably more likely to occur if we start to take multi-pronged approaches to therapy where we're not just dealing with the pain, where we're dealing with pain, mood, sleep disturbance all together to sort of try and achieve the best possible outcome, break these vicious cycles that we've touched on and turn, it, turn them into virtuous cycles. It's a tremendous explanation. I, I think that'll be really very helpful for everybody who's listening out there. Now, Peter, for the listeners who are having issues with their sleep, are there any resources out there that you'd like to point them in the direction of? Yes, I can definitely point them to the Sleep Health Foundation. If you just Google that, you'll find them. And it's Australia's leading community-based organisation advocating for sleep health across all Australians and lobbying government on their behalf to sort of raise awareness about the importance of sleep. On their website, you will find fact sheets dealing with all sorts of sleep complaints and sleep disorders. And it's a very rich resource to get useful, easy to understand information. Tremendous. No, that's fantastic. If there's nothing further about sleep, we're going to move on to the next segment. And this is the, uh, the rapid fire round. So quick questions, quick responses. But favorite book? I hate reading, certainly uh, fiction. I like nonfiction and sort of self-development. And I'm going to choose a book that's a bit left field. It's called Heroic Leadership by a man called Chris Lowney. You've never heard of it, no doubt. That's most of your readers. Oh. Well, I, I, I think I probably had the same Jesuit education <laughs> that you did. And it was it was pushed into our hand at school. So, yeah, I've, I've read it. Good. Okay. I'm glad, yeah. So it's about the oldest company in the world, a 450-year-old company called the Jesuits and, uh, and some of the best practices that come out of uh, that group. So that, 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 that was a very impactful book in my life. Yeah, tremendous. Favourite movie? I'm going for a foreign film here. So as you might guess from my surname, I'm of Italian background, and there's a movie called Cinema Paradiso that won an Academy Award, the most beautiful film score, and it's such a simple story about a young man growing up uh, in, a, in a Sicilian town and becomes a, a major film producer. Tremendous. Dog or a cat person? Definitely dog. I've got a little dog called Denzel. Joy of our life. Wonderful. Favourite quote? Everything happens for a reason. I don't know who came up with it, but I kind of think that uh, everything that happens to you, there's some kind of a learning that comes from it that you can take forward into your next experience. 
Yeah, no, it's a it's a great perspective because I think we we benefit usually irrespective of what comes. Yeah. Yes. What's your favorite food? My father is the best chef and he makes the best eggplant parmigiana. Lovely. Do you have a bad habit? I've got many, but the one that I'll share is that I bite my fingernails and I can't stop it. (laughs) Not an an uncommon confession on this show. Where would you next like to go on holiday, COVID aside? I'm desperate to go back to Italy. We love skiing in the Dolomite region near Austria and we desperately miss it. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? I'm going to say telling the future, although that is a bit daunting if you kind of knew everything that was going to happen. Yeah, I'd just like to know whether the investment in writing research applications is going to pay off. (laughs) (laughs) Just to bring people up to speed, Peter's just finished writing a grant. The rates of success in these grant applications is abysmally small. I guess he's just trying to work out if that investment in time was worth it. But if you could meet anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? I'm going to say Nelson Mandela. You know, he's such an inspirational leader. And I've kind of read uh, a lot about him and just sounds like a remarkable man. No, completely agree. Now, Peter, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Look, I'm on a bit of a mission at the moment to raise sleep health awareness. And that was why I didn't hesitate to join this podcast. It was an opportunity to share the message. We're trying hard to sort of get government to understand the importance of sleep and recognise it as a what I would call an upstream cause of many uh, of our chronic illnesses that we treat in hospitals. The government is currently trying to put together a preventive health strategy and they released a draft report and the word sleep barely is mentioned, which is extremely disappointing. So that's kind of my mission is to raise sleep health awareness. Sounds like a wonderful mission. Good luck with that. Now, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? I I subscribe to a particular framework around motivation. It was actually by an Australian academic, McGregor, who says that there's kind of three driving forces to people's motivation. One is achievement, one is affiliation, and one is power. And it's not that you only you have one driving force, you may have more than one, but there is a dominant one. And in me, the dominant one is achievement. It's not so much achievement for personal reward, but it's really just that sense of getting things done, preferably as part of a team. So that's really what drives me. Superb. And in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people out there who have osteoarthritis? Yes. Keep watching this podcast and listen to everything that Professor Hunter has to say because he has all the pearls. No, but jokes aside, I think I really just hope that this message that, you know, drugs are not the solution to everything and hopefully today's podcast has highlighted that there's a lot of things within your reach around your lifestyle that, can improve your quality of life and your health and sleep is one of them. And that's a wonderful positive way for us to close. And Peter, thank you so much for the insights, the wisdom, the wonderful translation of a very complex area that obviously plays a huge interplay with osteoarthritis and the insights that you've provided for our listeners. It's really, really beneficial. My absolute pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. So I'm hoping you found the topic of today's discussion helpful. 
as we tried to explain sleep disorders and sleep disturbance in people with osteoarthritis is incredibly common. Oftentimes recognition is challenging, but we spoke about a number of different methods that you might be able to use to identify if you are suffering from some sleep disorder or sleep disturbance. In the first instance though, it's ideal if we can all optimize our sleep hygiene as best we can, whether that be around ensuring some regularity around our sleep schedule, optimizing our sleep environment, watching out for the role that caffeine and alcohol plays, but in particular, more so for people that have osteoarthritis, paying particular attention to the mental health disorders that are so common amongst people with osteoarthritis that oftentimes plague and limit a person's sleep quality. So again, thank you so much for the time that you give us. It's a real pleasure to have an opportunity to speak to you about this incredibly important topic. I'm hoping that you found today's show interesting, and I'd really appreciate if you could rate that. It plays a lot of importance for the ongoing success of our show. Looking forward to questions that you might have and suggestions for future podcast topics. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.